Welcome back to Addicted to MRR. Today we have Patrick Stiles of Vitalytics. How's it going, Patrick? It's going great, Travis. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. So, uh, you know, we like to talk about subscription businesses. And uh, why don't you tell us about your business and how it works? Yeah, sure. So I have a company called Vitalytics. It's a video marketing platform. So basically people upload their videos to our service and then they get an embed code that they drop on their website. And then we stream the videos on their websites for their users. We have a bunch of uh, different features and kind of what we call conversion technology that increases the effectiveness of their videos from a marketing standpoint. And then we also collect bar none, the best marketing analytics for video anywhere on the market uh, so that you can really understand how people are engaging with your videos and everything like that. So we're a SaaS model with a base kind of plan or base plan price per month. And then we also do metered billing uh, when people have like a lot of bandwidth and they go over their plan, like allotted amounts and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Someone who has used Wistia in the past, I always know that the, the biggest... <laughs> I always know that the biggest cost center there when I did use it was bandwidth. Bandwidth was an absolute killer. So I'm sure that's a big hurdle for you guys in terms of your overall cost per month, if I had to guess. Uh, kind of. So like, so it's a big cost for us as a variable cost compared to other SaaSs. Like our variable costs, like our cost structure of the business has been horrendous. So it took a long time for us to get cash flow neutral. But as far as for users, we have like very affordable bandwidth, especially when you go to volume. And we also use AI in the encodings of our videos that we just released this in the last like couple weeks. And it actually uses as much as like 40% less bandwidth. We also did a split test last year where we use 14% less bandwidth than Wistia before the AI. So our bandwidth costs as much as, you know, half as much as Wistia's and we use use half as much in the first place. We're about a quarter of the price with better features, uh, really tailor-made for marketers that are selling with their videos. Cool, man. That's impressive. I wasn't trying to get you all thrown off by mentioning, you know, your arch nemesis probably. Yeah, but. no, it's cool. And I'm not trying to turn this into a commercial, but that's, that's the, those are the stone cold facts. Sure. <laughs> so. so let's understand some of the pricing and structure of your business. What kind of price points are you at and what is sort of your average uh, customer paying per month for your software? Yeah, so our plans start at $25 a month, and then we have some people paying several thousand dollars per month. So we really kind of run the gambit, and I really kind of like to kind of classify people into two, two different buckets. And there's kind of the first group that would be using our base plans, maybe starting on that $25 plan. And... You know, they might be bloggers or people with their first funnel or they're just kind of testing things out or maybe video just isn't that centric to their business. So that's kind of one bucket. And then the other group is uh, people that are aggressive direct response advertisers where video is kind of the end all be all heavy lifter of conversions when it comes to their funnels. Uh, so these are people with video sales letters and uh, they're driving, you know, cold traffic. Maybe they're dealing with affiliates and stuff like that. Those are the people that are paying us thousands of dollars per month because, you know, they're, they're really high volume. But if I had to say the last time I checked and I don't have the number off the top of my head, I might be able to grab it from my chart mogul. But I think our ARPU average revenue per user uh, per month is about a hundred bucks. Okay. And it's pretty respectable. So I mean, that's probably considered sort of a, a mid-market and that kind of SaaS sort of overall price point per month, maybe even towards the low end. But that that's still a, a great number to be able to build a business on. So at about a mm -hmm. hundred bucks per user per month, what is your current MRR for your recurring? Yeah. So we're at about 30,000 a month. Okay. That's great. And so does that cover your expenses at this point? Oh yeah. Yeah, it does. And, um, what's been really nice is we've been able to do some things to improve our cost structure, like our own bandwidth costs, which is like our biggest expense. Uh, so we've been able to partner with uh, some bigger, more enterprise uh, uh, CDNs in the world uh, now that we've kind of got into the size that we are now. So that's brought down our cost structure. And then what was it? I was going to say something else about about uh, bandwidth or something like that. Oh, no, I know what it was. So because our bandwidth was so expensive, I kept complaining to Google Cloud Platform, which is the kind of cloud provider that, that we're on, a direct competitor to Amazon Web Services. And uh, I kept complaining to them and being like, hey, listen, I'm paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And 
your prices are way too high. I'm going to leave. Do you want to salvage this account or not? I think six figures per year is a decent sized account that somebody should be willing to get on a phone or, or you know, try to pull some strings. And uh, it took months and months and months. But whenever I was in a bad mood, I'd send them off like a nasty gram and email. And uh, after a couple of months, they gave me a hundred thousand dollar credit for their services. So that's also been like a huge thing because because we, you know, we're we're spending five figures per month with uh, Google every single month just for cloud products. Uh, so that's basically cash in the bank for us. Yeah. So how many uh, points of contact did you have to have with Google before that credit became a thing? Points of contact? You mean like how many times did I bug them, or yeah, how many yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't know. I'd say at least half a dozen, but they were like, you know, kind of long ranty emails, you know, maybe not my best moment. Yeah. But I mean, that's probably like what, $10,000 an email. I mean, (laughs) $10,000 an email. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it wasn't too much, but uh, yeah, I I just really kind of railed against them and stuff. So, and, and really like the situation is that Google cloud platform is kind of in third place. So they're kind of willing to do something that some other folks aren't willing to do right now. So. Sure. So obviously Amazon's the big dog kind of in the arena. Would you, is uh, Azure, is it, you think it's the Windows services that are number two? Azure. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I, I don't really know, but I know some Googlers. Hopefully this, this podcast doesn't go viral and they get pissed off at me. But um, I know some Googlers like inside the company and they've all kind of said that like, yeah, GCP is not so great. Like from a performance standpoint, uh, not the performance of the platform, but like the business performance of that unit inside of uh, Alphabet as a whole. So, you know, it, it, that's also kind of the dynamic there. In fact, I was walking my dog outside of uh, my place and, and I met a couple that are my neighbors and one of them works at Google. And I kind of told them the problem I was having uh, before they gave me this credit. And they were like, oh, well, they should definitely be willing to work with you. And then at that point, I kind of like knew that, you know, there was some light at the end of the tunnel and I didn't have to like hold my breath. Before that, I was like, like, we're getting prepared to move to AWS and some stuff like that. So, but yeah, so, so that happened. And that was in case anybody is curious, in case anybody wants to go out and try to get the same thing. It was part of, uh, I think it's called Google Startup Accelerator. It's like a no equity deal. It's all remotes and and stuff like that. But I think that was the program under which we got approved uh, for that credit. Gotcha. Cool. So I want to transition here a little bit and talk about the way that you're taking prospects and actually converting them into customers. We've talked in the past about freemium and free trials and of free trials, Mm -hmm. you know, free trials that require a credit card, free trials that don't require a credit card, things that go right into payment. What is your current model when someone wants to become a customer with you? So our our current model is uh, free trial, credit card optional, and yeah, that's really it. There's some high fraud countries where we require a credit card. We've ran into some problems with somebody that uh, that was in like you know a third world country, signed up and uploaded hundreds of pirated movies. I think some of it was porn. Other things were like Hollywood movies that they obviously didn't have the rights to. And that was like a huge bill for us because we we encode all this and we have a lot of kind of things that we do behind the scenes when somebody uploads a video. So after that, we cracked down on the uh, credit card stuff. So we require it for maybe 20 or so high fraud countries throughout the world. And then, uh, you know, anybody else can sign up for a trial. And yeah, that's really it. So right now, though, most people come to the site and they sign up for a trial without putting in a credit card. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Most of our trials do not have a card. So I I would like to split test that. I haven't gotten around to it, but it's, you know, it's just not really a high priority as far as like, you know, the kind of different marketing projects that we have in front of us right now. Sure. So of the different models, I understand that at one point you guys had tried the freemium model. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we, so we launched about two years ago, which was like 2017, like in the spring. And um, this is my first tech company, not my first uh, kind of subscription driven business. But still, you know, there was some lessons to be learned. And I thought the business would kind of go viral and take off. And it didn't. And uh, after that, we kind of started just tinkering with some different things to see what would work. And we launched a, uh, a freemium account. And once we did that, we got a lot of signups. Like we went from z- absolutely zero signups to getting signups like pretty much every single day. And, you know, that was nice. But uh, what we didn't do was really monetize uh, those people and ascend them to higher paid accounts and stuff. And we still we have some people that are grandfathered into those free accounts. I don't really believe in kicking people off. And some of them have kind of paid for a few things here, like some extra video space or removing the logo that was on the free plan, only the free plan that was only on the free plans uh, player and some stuff like that. But it's very minuscule. Now, 
you know, full disclosure, we probably could have done a much better job at um, monetizing those people, upselling them, maybe restricting certain features and stuff like that. But especially then, we were a very small kind of startup, you know, bootstrapped and really just trying to be nimble and, and stuff like that and not kind of like overinvest in something that, that we didn't totally believe in. So we just improved the service and then we just killed the pre-plan and we kind of rebranded it, repositioned it in the marketplace. And that was a big turning point for us when we actually got a lot of traction. Sure, that makes sense. And so, how have you seen the the business progress over the, you know the last few years? Obviously, it sounds like you know your your signups were kind of up and down there in the beginning, but that didn't necessarily translate into revenue. When you're tracking from a revenue standpoint, you know where were you after one year compared to now, and and how has now even compared to the last six months? Yeah, sure. So. So, so the last six months, we've probably tripled our top line. And from a year ago, we we're probably doing less than a thousand a month. A year ago, though, this was before the kind of rebranding and the repositioning of the service. And uh, I think we still had a free plan and everything like that. I was also at that time, I was the CEO of a public company, something that I kind of did on the side, one for the opportunity of like what that represented for me to kind of go and do and start a company in this like really kind of new hot area and like take it public and stuff. But then the other side of it was to provide cash flow to continue bootstrapping the tech company, uh, Vitalytics. So yeah, things were kind of on life support during that time from about like the time that we launched two years ago to about a year ago. However, we were still building features. I still have my dev team working on things and we were still kind of forging ahead then. We still believed in, you know, the product we were building. We just really had it, you know, kind of gotten it out there. So, yeah. So then a year ago, we we had over maybe the last six months leading up to this, we had uh, released, you know, a dozen, two dozen features that were all very centric to uh, driving conversions. And then we, you know, basically redid our marketing website, really put the emphasis on these new features, highlighted how they were effective. We did have some some users that were, you know, using us and stuff like that. So we were beginning to get uh, testimonials and case studies and like split test data from like what we were building, actually making dollars and cents for the end user for justifying the cost of our platform. And then we rebranded it. And I really didn't put a lot of effort into it, but I just kind of put it out there. And uh, through basically, you know, my network and some masterminds that I was a part of and some stuff like that, we really got a lot of traction and it's been growing ever since. Well, that's cool. So I'm I'm sure that a big portion of that is word of mouth because any good product that tells a compelling story and provides success to a meaningful percentage of their audience is going to get word of mouth traction. But outside of word of mouth, you know, what channels do you have right now that are, are actually driving new trial accounts? Are you working with affiliates, organic, paid traffic? Kind of what are we talking that's working for you right now? Yeah, sure. So aside from that, uh, kind of like word of mouth stuff, I would say our biggest channel is probably affiliates. And uh, we accidentally stumbled onto another channel that's quite similar, but I would, I would classify it differently as influencers. So like right now we have um, a kind of like a guru, a marketing guru out of Germany who is recommending our service to everybody in his program. So we've had like dozens of German users sign up and uh, we kept noticing the .de uh, domains and we're like, where are these people coming from? So uh, finally, I, you know, I reached out and I asked a couple of them and the same name came back each time. So then I got connected with that guy and he's just like, yeah, we love your service. We recommend it to everybody. And, uh, you know, we're starting to attract more people like that. And then on the affiliate side, that's also been, uh, aside from word of mouth, you know, Barton on our, our best channel that we've gone after. But it's, it's a bit tricky of a kind of channel for SaaSes. And I think most SaaS companies don't understand affiliate marketing like, you know, maybe somebody like yourself with, you know, the background of the things you've done uh, before Campaign Refinery or like, you know, anybody from the health space. I mean, there's companies doing millions of dollars a month purely on affiliates. And, uh, you know, that would if I think if your typical SaaS like growth marketer saw the inside of some of these businesses, which are actually our ideal clients, where it's a handful of people, they're doing six to seven figures a month in revenue just with, you know, cold traffic to a long form video that's that's making a pitch for a product. I think it would blow the mind of those kind of SaaS growth marketers just because it's a whole nother world. It's like the wild, wild west. Yeah, you know, you're actually not the first person even today that I've talked to that's talked about <laughs> how SaaS and all these subscription businesses really are kind of like the Wild West. You know, what you described kind of sounds to me like affiliates with super affiliates, you know, sort of the the heavyweight, maybe sort of more of an actual true joint venture in some ways. What does your affiliate program look like? Like, what is the expectation that those affiliates 
come into the relationship expecting to make? Is it a recurring for life kind of setup? Is it a one-off fee? What's the structure of that program that's worked well so well for you so far? Yeah. So we pay commissions for life reoccurring. We might change that, you know, in the future, but, uh, that's what we're doing right now. Our commissions rates start at 20%. They go up to 40%. And um, that's for our core SaaS products. And like I said earlier, we have a lot of variable costs that are baked into, into the business. So we don't have a ton of margin to play with there. But then we do also have kind of another profit center inside of the business that's education and training about video marketing. And uh, those commission rates can be even higher. A typical one there is about 50%. Okay. And so does that range of the 20 to 40%, does that vary based on the plan or does that vary based on like the size of the partnership? It's going to vary on the, on the size of the partnership on who the person is. Yeah. So it, you know, if somebody can come in and, and drive like a lot of signups, then yeah, we want to keep them happy. We want them to make a bunch of money so that they keep, you know, sending us people, you know, we want to double down on something that's working where I feel like a lot of the other SaaS companies out there, they're like, oh, the most we can do is 20 and it's only for one year. So it's not lifetime. And uh, if you start making a lot of money, they're going to start thinking of ways of how you can make less money of how they could bring down that cost. But I think that's really flawed thinking and that the best way to approach it is that your affiliates are critical, you know, growth partners. How can they make more money from my service? How can, you know, I make them as rich as possible? Because if they're making money, I'm obviously making money and I'm going to continue to grow. And that's something that I want more of. So those those are kind of my thoughts on it. But we get a lot of people that sign up for our affiliate program and we screen each and every one of them. A lot of them, I'd say the majority of them do not get approved just because like, you know, we don't want some like rinky dink person that maybe heard of this and just wants to refer to, you know, their business partner so they could sign up for the service or, or like, you know, for like one little one off thing or do like kind of some spammy things that could potentially damage our brand or dilute our own marketing efforts, like, you know, bidding on our brand name and some typical kind of uh, no nos under affiliate programs. Sure, that makes total sense. Yeah, with with the programs that we've run in the past, we're more than happy to bump up percentages to affiliates who drive a lot of traffic, similar to how, you know, hosting companies, if you do a certain amount of hosting accounts, they pay a much more generous commission. From our perspective, some of our biggest partners, they even want to handle some of the frontline support because they're offering our tool as maybe some part of like bigger training or coaching program. And the, you know, the total package there includes a tool like us. And so, for us, we'd happily give, you know, an affiliate a 10% bump if we also don't really have to deal with a lot of the support that might come from their audience. So there's different ways of looking at it. And I totally agree that if, if you make it successful for the affiliate, then, you know, everyone can continue to be successful and they'll have an incentive to continue to drive new business. And that's, that's where in my mind, it sort of bridges from the affiliate to more of a joint venture type relationship when it becomes a, a larger, more established, more sustained type of promotion. Totally. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. And it, there's kind of a direct parallel with paid traffic. I used to argue until I was blue in the face with some of my friends that, you know, have online businesses. And like, I, I remember when I got my first uh, supplement company, my first online business, I was selling health supplements to, you know, like five figures a month. And it just like kept growing and stuff. And I was driving a lot of that with paid traffic, specifically on Google Display Network. And people were saying like, oh, well, great. Now you need like you're spending, say, 10 grand a month to drive 30,000 in revenue, like whatever the number was. They're like, you need to chop that five, that 10 grand in half or get it down to two. Imagine if you didn't have to pay it. And it's just like, listen, all these sales came from that. Nobody heard of this company, this offer, this product before they clicked on that ad. So like, yeah, maybe I could drive down the cost of that and it could be more efficient. But ultimately, if you can double how much you pay for paid traffic, you're not going to get twice the amount of traffic. You're going to get five times, 10 times the amount of volume. And that's what I'm after. I want to, I want the, I want a smaller piece of a bigger pie essentially. So it's the same thing with affiliates, you know, uh, they're going to affiliates, you know, they have their kind of re relationship or reputation equity that they can spend in only so many places. So they're going to go wherever the most dollars are. So, you know, if you make them money, then you're going to be their number one affiliate program that they recommend. And they're going to be your biggest fan. They're going to be a cheerleader and they're going to tell other people about it. And you're going to get ultimately more affiliates. So it's, it's kind of this compounding effect that I think a lot that's lost on a lot of people that kind of have this like bean counter accounting mentality, nothing against accountants. I have a degree in finance, 
but ultimately, you know, I think it's kind of almost like a scarcity mindset to put it in different language. So I completely agree. Yeah. Recently, uh, Justin Brooke, I'm not sure if you know who that is, but you probably yeah, do. He, he posted about, you know, a test they're running with a pay what you want versus like a free plus ship offer. Okay. And he was looking in originally the pay what you want front end funnel was actually doing more revenue on the front end. But when they started looking at adding bumps and upsells and this and that, they actually found that while the pay what you want did a little bit more on the front end, it did terribly on upsells. Uh, but more importantly to what we were just talking about is that the free plus ship converted at a way higher percentage, even though it didn't make as much money straight up in their initial yeah. test. And he was talking about how he, you know, texted Perry Belcher and all the other people and said, you know, which one of these would you pick? And universally, all the smartest people in his phone, you know, his Rolodex said, more customers, duh. <laughs> yeah. There's clearly yeah. going to be a breaking point to that, you know, at some point, like if it's not self-liquidating or something of that nature. But sure, as long as you can continue to afford the media, if you are getting more customers out of it, that's almost always the right answer. Yeah. And uh, I've seen some things in the past where I had two ads that had almost identical click-through rates. And uh, so, and that's how I used to optimize my campaigns years ago, right? When I was still pretty green, obviously, as you're about to hear. But so I was, I was really just kind of looking at the CTR, the click-through rate, saying like, okay, these ads are about equal, assuming that all of the clicks convert at the same rate. And uh, later, I looked at my cost per acquisition for per customer for each ad set. And um, on one ad, it was twice as much as the other one. So, and actually the one with a slightly lower click-through rate was converting better and ultimately its economics were better as far as the cost per acquisition. And that's another thing. You got to normalize all these numbers for something like CPA or even better ROAS, return on, on ad spend. Because it doesn't really matter if your CPA is five bucks or 500. It depends on how much you're making, especially day one and some stuff like that. Yeah, totally. People need to look at the long game. It's, it's easy to get caught up in the vanity metrics and Totally. And uh, optimize for the narrow, the narrow field of view, which, you know, mm -hmm. optimizing for that, just that front end, you know, opt-in conversion or something, you know, what's my cost per lead and not backing all the way out at least, you know, to a 30 day window or something and saying, Hey, when I spend this to this audience with this creative, how much money am I actually making? So that's definitely a keen observation. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to just loop back one more th time about freemium because I, ju I just remembered you know, there's a lot of businesses <laughs> sure. out there that have done freemium. You know, we were one of those early days when we transitioned uh, contest domination from a WordPress plugin to a SaaS. We initially offered a free plan and similar to you, we found that we were just getting kind of murdered <laughs> on the, yeah, there was a lot of people signing up, but a lot of people were just using the free account. We probably gave them too much value on the free plan and weren't compelling enough in our, story and our feature set differences to our paid plans. So is it something we discontinued? And one thing I know that a lot of businesses need to consider, because like, you know, you and I both now have discontinued a freemium plan within our business. How did you handle that transition of no longer offering the freemium? And what was the reaction from your audience? Well, we grandfathered everybody in that was on freemium. So the fallout or blowback was like nil. It, it was like nobody noticed. We noticed it as far as like signups and there was kind of like a transition period then where obviously all these people that were coming and signing up for something that was free, those kind of uh, those people that, that wanted a deal, you know, they kind of like, you know, went away and some stuff like that. But that was it. So and, and we announced it to our, you know, to our audience, to our users and stuff and just said like, hey, we're doing away with this. We might have raised our prices. I don't really remember, but that would also be something that we would mention. Just be like, hey, you can grant, you can lock in this price if you want it. Gotcha. Because I've seen several different tools, you know, like Help Scout and a whole bunch of other ones that at one point offered a free a free plan and then discontinued it. And then it seems like eventually down the line, they want to get rid of the free plan altogether, not even the fact that they stopped offering it to new customers, but then they want to try to force their old people off. And that always yeah. kind of let, when you do that, when you take it to that second step, that's when it feels like sometimes you can leave a bit of a bitter taste in their mouth because it's by kicking them off their free plan. Yeah. Maybe some small percentage of them will upgrade to a paid plan just because they're slightly entrenched. But I feel like oftentimes when you say, Hey, you can't do that anymore. It's difficult to have that kind of conversation about, well, now you got to pay us money. Like, well, I signed up for a free plan. That was a deal you made. I didn't tell you to make the bad deal. You know, it's totally <laughs> that's that's perspective. So it's yeah. always interesting to see how people handle those kind of transitions. You know, for us, it was something that we did end up having to cease the previous functionality. Yeah. And so what we did is we actually offered 
a really inexpensive way for them to get the more premium feature set for a highly reduced price. It's like, look, meet us, you know, less than halfway and it'll get you all the stuff that everyone who from today forward will be paying a higher price. But as a way of saying, thank you for believing in us early, here's a discount you can lock in forever. And that was that. So that was a good way to offset. Yeah. Um, we didn't do this because of, you know, the story I just told, but, uh, the, the other thing that I probably would have done if I if I did have that problem would be to have all the free users basically build a moat around them as far as the feature set. So everything new that we add to the system, they don't get access to. And that's fair. It's almost, you know, like the comment that you made where it's like, you know, the customer didn't make this deal. You know, the, the business offered it and they took took them up on it. Well, they took them up on the feature set that was available on the free plan at the time that they signed up. There was no guarantee that all these, you know, new features that we're going to, you know, dump just massive amounts of money into to develop, you know, are going to be offered to them. So that would probably be the, the one way that I would handle it. But sometimes you got to you got to break some eggs to, to make an omelet. And so I guess sometimes businesses get in bad positions and they got to kill that stuff off. I think that most of the time it's optional, though. And uh, I definitely think that if you're going to jack up prices on existing users like Intercom just did, you're going to lose just you're, you're going to sow a lot of uh, ill will, bad will. And uh, basically, you know, those those are people that are going to be kind of jaded on your service and that are going to kind of hold a grudge. You know, humans are emotional creatures. And it's kind of like if uh, if if your best friend's you know girlfriend cheats on him, you're always going to be kind of like a hater. You know, you're going to kind of always have that in the back of the mind, no matter, you know, how happy they seem and stuff like that. And I think it's the same thing if you jack people around on their prices and stuff like that. And I mean, ultimately, it feels like a bait and switch and nobody likes to be tricked. It's not so much about how much we pay. It's about whether or not we get a fair deal that most people are concerned about over the actual nominal cost, at least in my opinion, my personal experience as both a marketer and a consumer. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we've recently seen in the last six months with uh, in, in our space from Campion Refinery's perspective, we've seen customers on Infusionsoft and Drip both feel pretty jaded and sour about you know their bills doubling or even in some case tripling or 10xing seemingly overnight with little to no warning. Uh, you know, in Drip's case, they basically said, "Hey, unless you buy an annual plan, we're going to significantly change your rates." And Infusionsoft trying to pull some of the same shenanigans. So. Yeah, that's definitely, a, a, you know, when people have come to us, they say, hey, if I buy this price, do I get this as long as I remain a customer? And I need to know that that's really a commitment you guys are willing to do. And that was an interesting objection, you know, that I wouldn't have expected someone to have because I would have never expected any of our competitors to fluctuate so radically. Yeah. Well, you know, what's also really interesting about those two examples that you have is that both of them raised a boatload of money. And I'm not saying I'll never raise money. You know, I actually have in that business that I took public, which, you know, wasn't the greatest experience, to be perfectly honest. But I feel like when companies, especially when they go to venture capitalist, maybe early on, they have a lot of growth, like lead pages was really one of the very first like landing page builders before all these other people came into the market space. And now it seems like every other week, somebody's, you know, launching a new landing page builder. But anyways, they raise all this money, they lose control of their company, they get all these venture capitalists on their board. And now, you know, in the venture capitalists, they need a billion dollar exit, not the, you know, not the entrepreneur that started the business. Uh, but the, the venture capitalist is diversified. So they don't care if one company burns out. So they're going to, you know, tell those, those companies that they're on the boards of to put the pedal to the metal and burn the gas and try to go, go big or go home basically. And because of that, I think a lot of these companies do freemium types of models. They load up on a bunch of users. They miscalculate, you know, some of the things and they're kind of forecasting. And, you know, later they got to go back with egg on their face and change their pricing and do stuff like that. And they start doing things that are not aligned with the customer. And I think it's because ultimately the venture capitalist is not aligned with the entrepreneur. And then the entrepreneur gets out of alignment with the customer. And they're really not building something that's of high value that, you know, has a fair price. It's more at that point about dollars and cents. And how can we maximize every little penny out of somebody that signed up for us? Not, you know, how can we really kind of grow the business? How can we, can, how can we expand our market or anything like that? Don't let me go on a rant or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it seems like a fair analysis. I mean, I, I haven't raised money, but um, the whole process has been a bit of a turnoff for me personally. So, yeah, I'm not even sure how I would walk through that or walk that fine line. I, I don't know what that particular kind of stress level or 
you know, decision-making process is because I haven't done it. But yeah, it, there certainly seems to be some similarities between businesses who have raised significant amounts of money and how their behavior changes with their relationship to their customer. Yeah. So that being said, let's let's talk about uh, a few more metrics on your end. Uh, I'm not sure how well this is tracked necessarily on your end, but I do always like to uh, consider two things. One is, what are you doing to actively help your customers progress up the food chain of your various price points? So if someone comes in, you know, free trial, and they, you know, get on your base, you know, $25, $30 a month plan, are you doing anything actively to help them sort of work their way up, up your food chain? Uh, to be perfectly honest, Travis, I'm not. What we focus on is just helping people get better conversions with their videos. And maybe I'm naive or ignorant or whatever, but uh, you know, I feel like if people get conversions, then they're going to have more videos. They're going to get more traffic, and that's ultimately going to move them up our up our uh, up through our plans because it's totally based on usage. I would be interested to experiment with different features across the different plans. And you know, what's funny is we actually planned on doing that a year ago when we rebranded and we had this huge chart on our website where it listed out all our features. And some of them were on like the lights and the pro and the, and, and then the Vidmaster, which is our top plan right now. Uh, that's publicly, you know, that you can sign up for on the website. So we had all these features kind of bucketed out across the different plans, but we didn't actually go and build that into the system. So somebody that signed up for the light plan, then actually it's called starter. I should know the names of my own plans. But anyways, they signed up for that and they had all the features and nobody really complained. Nobody asked questions or anything like that. Maybe they got in there and they said, oh, I have access to all this. But ultimately, we just didn't really kind of want to mess with it from a tech perspective and like a business perspective that we just feel like we have bigger fish to fry than try to really kind of ratchet things down and control like what our users can and cannot do. I'd rather just have like the most awesome service out out there, period, and make it really simple to understand our pricing as well, and then just provide a good service and grow from there. Now, of course, you also got to consider like where we're at as a company. You know, I told you I'm doing $30,000 a month. And by the way, that's just MRR, not including like our course or education sales or anything like that, which is a different profit center. But um, if we were well into the six figures or seven figures per month, maybe we would be not only having, you know, kind of the, the horsepower to try these different experiments, but also be like looking at our business differently and not only the business, but also our position in the marketplace. Sure. And that, that'll make sense. What about churn? You know, churn is obviously a big consideration. I always tell people, you know, the difference between 2% churn and 4% churn doesn't seem like that much, but it's totally kneecapping, you know, <laughs> your, your ability to grow with even that small or, you know, perceived small amount of churn difference. Why are people churning typically out of your software now? And what are you doing to try to combat that? Yeah. So I would say the biggest reason that we get is people are just not using it. You know, they, they signed up and then they're just like, you know, like they're, they're not utilizing it. Those types of churners are absolutely on the low side of our of like the plans and revenue and stuff like that. So on the higher scale, we haven't really lost anybody that's really kind of moved over and started pumping a lot of traffic through our system. So, you know, that's that's definitely a strong positive. So, yeah, so I would say that's the biggest reason why they're churning. And then as far as like, you know, trying to combat that. We're trying to do education and stuff like that. We have awesome support. I'll jump in there. And I, I'm a multi-million dollar video marketer. I've been running companies for 10 years. And uh, I'll gladly give people advice about their marketing, about their videos. We have a Facebook group. And I'll get in there and I'll, I'll write like paragraphs. And it blows people's minds. So really, I just want people to be successful. And I think like that's going to you know naturally kind of lead into Vitalytics. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I mean, it... Churn is such a hard thing to to go after, but it, luckily, you know, with videos, it's something that is pretty sticky. You know, a lot like marketing automation or other tools. Whereas our mm -hmm. contest business had pretty high churn, not because it was a bad tool, people didn't get success, but the problem there was to continue to get success. It took a lot of energy to go set up your next campaign, set up the next promotion structure around it, et cetera, et cetera. And so we'd find people that would have phenomenal success, but then they just wouldn't do it again. It's not because it didn't work, but because they just didn't carve out the time to do it again. But yeah, videos, you know, you stick a hundred videos in your membership area. Like you don't want to have to go redo that. 
Yeah, which, yeah, so, yeah, and that's actually one of the problems for onboarding people. So what we've started doing is offering a concierge onboarding thing. And uh, depending on what plan they'll sign up for and how many videos they have, we'll do it for free. And um, we'll have somebody from our team basically, you know, log into whatever their other video hosting platform is and load it into our system. And uh, so, so, so that is something kind of in the inverse or, or reverse that, that we look at. Yeah, I think that's more and more common with uh, SaaS platforms that have high switching costs. Certainly true in the marketing automation space. It doesn't surprise me that it's true in the video space as well. All right, totally. so we got we got two more things to kind of bring nice. us towards the close. The first question I like to ask is, how did you get your first 10 customers? And, and I like to ask that question because, you know, 30K MRR is great. You know, you're, you're able to pay all of your expenses off that recurring revenue. I'm sure it gives you a lot of peace of mind. I'm sure that, you know, the last 10K was easier than the 10K before that, than the 10K before that. So when you're first getting started, how did you go out, grind and get those first 10 customers? So, you know, we, we tried everything and I have a lot of buddies that have like videos in their funnels and, and stuff like that. So luckily, like, like one of my friends is a, you know, like eight, nearly nine figure copywriter and he works on a lot of videos and stuff like that. So he was using it for his own stuff and he, he sent us a couple people. So, you know, that was nice. So, so I guess it was kind of like warm network, you know, word of mouth kind of thing uh, there. But I think we ran a Facebook ad and we got this guy on our platform and um, I won't share his name, but I know exactly who he is. And I, I dealt with him early on and stuff. And he actually wanted to become an affiliate and buy traffic for us. And it was really kind of interesting because when we initially launched our like main and only feature was video analytics, which are cool, but it's maybe not close enough to the, the bottom line of the business to really kind of justify that, that fever and desire and kind of that virability of a product. But anyways, like this, this guy was very analytical and he was a video marketer. He was doing a lot of funnels. He was working with clients. He had his own stuff and he, he saw it and he was just like, this is awesome. And it blew his mind. So he signed up and he's one of these people that's grandfathered onto our free plan because uh, he's just not a large user, but he's paid for like all these extras, like removing the logo and adding, uh, you know, extra videos and stuff like that. So, you know, that's been good. And then another thing that we did was we, uh, or I, I joined a mastermind and um, it, it was more of a health centric one with Ed O'Keefe. Ed's a great guy. If you're in the health space, I'd recommend him. But I joined it because of this business, uh, this other one that went public, it was in the health space. And I had a business partner that was a part of the mastermind. So we decided to do it together when he renewed his thing. And we were in there and that was actually really, really good. And it was funny because some of our biggest users now were in that group. And I'd already talked to them through introductions and had Skype calls and, and whatever, but I just got zero traction with them. But then just by virtue of being in that group and them kind of hearing what I'm doing, like, uh, and like when we got some big names, like John Benson started using us and some other people like that were in case anybody at home doesn't know, uh, John Benson invented the video sales letter. He has a billion dollars of sales under his belt. He's taught, you know, marketing concepts, video marketing. So getting him was a huge win. So, you know, kind of doing that also really kind of snowballed into some other accounts, including these people that were in the mastermind. But then like they just kind of got exposed to me in a non like salesy way where I wasn't trying to pitch them or get them to do anything. But they just heard about it. They're like, hey, maybe we should check out this thing called Vitalytics. And then it, and then it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, awesome. I always love hearing those origin stories because, like I said, getting those first handful of customers can really feel like a grind <laughs> in, in the it early did. days. You know, because you don't have the testimonials, you don't have the case studies. You know, maybe at best you've used it yourself and have some data, but you know, it's like, let me tell you how awesome I am. Like that's no fun, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that getting those like first few know. customers to to believe in you and pull out their wallet and give you some money is uh, is definitely a challenge that. I think every business owner goes through, but it's even more challenging when you're saying, hey, you want to put down your money and put it down every month <laughs> on something yeah. that's new to the marketplace, even if, you know, we make big, bold promises. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll say this, getting our first thousand dollars in revenue was like soul crushingly hard. Getting the next twenty nine thousand wasn't so bad. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? That's yeah. that's one of the great parts of, about a business that lives on monthly recurring revenue is that it's like a snowball running downhill in a lot of ways. So yeah, uh, it gets easier and easier for the next chunk and then the next chunk and then the next chunk. But that doesn't mean that it's easy 
full stop. It just means that it gets easier, right? Yeah. And the challenges are different. So my buddy, Adam Sharan, really savvy marketer, he taught me this concept where it's like, when you're like really low in revenue and stuff like that, you're in the stress zone. And that's where you can't afford employees. You're doing everything yourself. Maybe you're worried about paying the rent or whatever, you know, you can't really dedicate the resources to the business that it needs to go to the next level. And it sucks. And once you get out of that stress zone, it's, it's just golden. It's just so much easier. And I have friends that are like, oh, I don't want employees. I suck at managing. And I just think that's such a terrible belief about yourself, especially as an entrepreneur and stuff like that. And my life got so much better when I started hiring a team around me, even just a competent assistant that could help me run my numbers every month. This is in a different business. So it's, you know, kind of different dynamics, but, you know, running my numbers or just helping me, you know, find other people or hire, you know, or manage projects, things like that. It's only gotten easier. And I dream you know, when I have a really robust team and I really don't have to be a maker at all. And I'm just a manager as far as that paradigm of, you know, maker versus manager and stuff. So I think that's the spot to get through. So if anybody's out there and you're in that stress zone and you're really struggling and stuff like that, just push through and keep going because it only gets easier. Well, I'm glad that you talked about stress because even without knowing what the last part of this interview is going to be about, yeah, <laughs> it actually segues pretty nicely. So nice. what I like to talk about is something that I think is greatly underserved and discussed too infrequently. As someone who personally deals with journalized anxiety and even panic occasionally, mm-hmm. yeah, I know How'd that you know? Uh, someone who you know deals with that, it, I think that it's a lot more common than is really discussed in the entrepreneur space, be that stress, anxiety, panic, depression. The mental health side of things is a really important thing that's near and dear to my heart. And so what I want to hear from you is, Is this anything that you've gone through personally? And if so, what things have you found that can help mitigate and improve that situation in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. I've gone through that stuff. Hopefully I'm allowed to cuss. Sorry. But uh, yeah, in fact, my very first product that I sold online was an anxiety supplement. And me and my partner started it because we were taking the individual ingredients ourselves and we knew that it really worked and that it delivered results. And it's really interesting about the whole kind of like anxiety and stress paradigm. And a lot of people don't really think that they have anxiety ever. And I was probably well into my 30s before I realized, oh, I'm kind of an anxious person. I'm like wound tight. My mind's racing. I have trouble sleeping, those types of things. And uh, it was just like, oh, wow, maybe these are connected. But uh, a lot of people will say they are stressed, which is more of an external thing like, oh, my wife's stressing me out. My job's stressing me out. You know, the, the morning commute traffic stressing me out where anxiety is something more internal. And in the absence of anything external that's stressing you out, anxiety will latch on to those things or make them up or just kind of worry about things that, that don't exist. So being an entrepreneur has been a wild ride. And I absolutely believe that the hardest part about it isn't marketing or hiring or coming up with an idea or raising money or whatever. It's absolutely the mind game. And, uh, you know, there's been times where I was in a deep, dark depression and I didn't really realize it at the time, but I was growing my, uh, first online business. I, you know, had burned through all my savings. I wasn't, I had a little bit of revenue, but I really wasn't breaking, uh, or making any money. And I had to move to California to house sit my brother's uh, place when he was deployed. And, um, so I was there in Southern orange County all alone, didn't have any friends working around the clock on my business. I was started working with clients to pay the bills. And, uh, it was just a really crappy time. I gained a bunch of weight and, you know, looking back at it, it was just like, wow, that was like one of the shittiest times of my life. And it's, it's really too bad. I was like 28 and I could have really been kind of like enjoying it a lot more. And, uh, it's funny because, I've, I've, I've made money. I've lost money. I made money. I lost it again. And, you know, so on and so forth. And what I've kind of learned is that when I first started a business, uh, something small would go wrong and I would freak out like the sky is falling. I'm going to be homeless by the end of the week. And, uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, several years into my entrepreneurial journey that I realized like, that's just not, I'm just not that guy. And it's not to say that I'm better than that, or I'm insulated than that, but I've gone through some roller coasters as far as finances. And I've always kind of done some things to cover my bills. And I'm very conservative. I keep my expenses low and some stuff like that. And I kind of realized like, I'm not going to wind up homeless. Like that's not the next step. The next step is like, we got to redo this project or whatever, you know? And there's so many things that could happen before you really kind of get to that worst case nightmare. And in reality, the worst case, the nightmare, 
nightmare is more something like I went through where, oh, I had to get clients and do some extra things to cover the bills. You know, it wasn't like I was homeless or anything like that. I, 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 I don't know if I directly answered your question there. That was kind of a meandering mess. But yeah, I mean, I've absolutely dealt with it. And I think with time, I've gotten a lot more perspective as far as, you know, what's a big deal and what's not. To combat it, though, I do take supplements. The anxiety supplement that I, you know, brought to market years ago, that's uh, called Zen Anxiety. You can find it at zenlifesupplements.com if you're interested. But it's, uh, you know, it's GABA and L-theanine, which are some amino acids that really kind of put the brakes on your mind from running away with uh, anxiety. Uh, I do that. I definitely try to take care of my sleep. And it was like over a decade of heavy duty caffeine abuse before I realized that that's something that doesn't work for me. Now I've tested my genes and I know that like in my DNA, I, I, I don't have the gene to metabolize caffeine. And this is why I'm ultra sensitive to caffeine. So I'll drink decaf and have insomnia 12 hours later. So definitely trying to keep things in perspective, avoiding caffeine, trying to sleep enough, which is something huge that a lot of people don't think about. Everybody thinks health comes down to diet and exercise, but sleep is probably the third forgotten pillar that most people don't get enough of. When I know sleep, I feel like crap. I'm prone to, you know, get stressed out, be very much in a reactionary kind of mindset and stuff like that. And then uh, I do try to meditate and exercise as well. And that's that's really kind of how I manage it for myself. Yeah, the, what you just described basically sounds like my checklist as well. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's for me there. I figured that there was different, I found out that there was different levers that could improve or worsen my situation. And, you know, regular cardio, good sleep, meditation, you know, all those things help. And then I found also, you know, by even doing 23andMe that uh, I'm sensitive to caffeine, which shouldn't shock me because my mom is sensitive to caffeine. Her right. mom's, you know, it yeah. clearly runs in the family. And then for me, even alcohol was a big piece of that as well without realizing it. And I think part of that just has to do with as I've gotten a little bit older, you know, I'm still only 31, but as I got a little bit older, my body has, metabolizes and deals with alcohol differently as well. So, you know, yeah. different, different substances can, you know, uh, you know, mood altering substances can affect your outcome. Shocker, right? Yeah. <laughs> and doing cardio, you know, releasing endorphins and helping clear your mind. I found that for me, the the biggest thing about cardio is that it's one of the few times in the day, because I try to do cardio almost every day, it's one of the few times that my body and my mind can truly clear, because I'm the kind of person that obsesses about every little thing on every little product and every little project, which has probably helped me in a lot of ways, but that yeah. really takes its toll over time. And by doing cardio, I'm a big, you know, I'm 6'4", and so, like, it's hard for a big guy like me to run. And so my mind has to just think, like, you know, one foot in front of the other and breathe in, breathe out. And that's about all I can manage when I'm running. And that yeah. really seems to be just as beneficial as the endorphin release. So <laughs> thank you for sharing, and, and I hope you agree that, you know, in this space, it's easy to kind of think, like, man, I'm going crazy or I'm losing my mind or I'm the only person like this because – People don't like to talk about their weaknesses, especially in the age of social media, right, where you're trying oh, to curate about you know, the things that are going really well. And, and I think it's easy to feel like you might be on an island, you might be the only person suffering from whatever the you know, magnitude or spectrum of, of mental health issues is. But it's important to know that we're all kind of in this together and we all have the same struggles. And importantly, we can all get through it and there's ways to manage it and mitigate it and keep living a, a good, healthy, productive life. So thank you so yeah. much for sharing that side of your story. Sure. Yeah. A, a few things I'll add. I, I also found that being isolated really kind of, you know, messes with my mental space a lot. I've lived in like eight different countries around the world. I was doing the digital nomad thing. And it's funny because I look at the countries I enjoyed and the ones that I really didn't like. And the difference isn't, you know, like the weather or the cost or the people or anything like that. It's whether or not I got plugged in with a social group. I was single for a lot of it. So, you know, it's like if I was dating or anything like that. But the places where I was all alone, just grinding it out in a foreign country, where I'm already isolated, that's really hard. So, you know, I, I think especially, you know, entrepreneurs out there uh, that are getting started, they should absolutely try to build a peer group of entre other entrepreneurs or people on similar journeys, other marketers, whatever it is, because one, that's going to sharpen your skills. You're going to be able to commiserate, but you're also not going to be isolated. I shut down a recruiting firm where I was making, you know, six figures per year in my mid 20s to basically start an online business so that I could travel the world. My family thought I was absolutely crazy. They're like, what are you doing? 
you know, like you could make so much money. And for me, it wasn't about the money. I wanted this freedom. I wanted this different lifestyle. I didn't want an ordinary life where I lived in the burbs and I had everything that's predictable. I wanted to see what else this world had to offer for my experience of being alive. And uh, it was really hard to uh, to listen to those or to have those people around me because when my business was struggling, it's easy to listen to those voices of those those people in your life that are telling you, oh, maybe you should go find a job. Maybe this isn't working, you know, and, and stuff like that. Sometimes those voices can be internal. So, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, well, that's the thing. I mean, they're really echoing what's already inside of your mind. I mean, I think everybody that, that goes out and starts a business has those doubts and uh, that kind of battle inside of them. So, but, you know, ultimately it's, uh, you know, those voices and those people in our lives, they don't mean harm to us. They're not trying to bring us down. They actually care about us and they're trying to protect us. They don't, they don't really care if we become rich or if we become ultra successful. They care if we suffer and if we fail and they don't want us to see, they don't want to see us go through that. And, um, you know, that's somewhat of a parallel to the whole thing with anxiety and how everybody, you know, kind of has their own battles and, and stuff. But, you know, these things. I'm a firm believer that everybody's greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. And, uh, you know, these things like anxiety, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it really sucks to go through and it can definitely be a huge pain point. But then on the inverse side, it's like, maybe people that are anxious are much more detail focused. They're more like, you know, they're more kind of like managing all the different aspects, aspects of their business. They don't let things fall through the cracks. They're really on top of things and, and stuff like that. And, you know, there's all sorts of different examples, uh, no matter what, what it is, if you're an introvert and extrovert, you know, if, if you come from a rich family, a poor family, if you're educated, if you're not, if you have experience, whatever, there's strength and weaknesses to everything out there. And I think it's a journey of, you know, kind of finding out who you are, what works for you, like whether it's, you know, caffeine, or alcohol or cardio, those types of things. And uh, really just kind of, you know, learning from that, but then also, you know, kind of watching the inverse of your strength and, and weaknesses to, you know, to try to, you know, have the best effect out of those things. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a great way for us to kind of wrap the interview and wrap th it. <laughs> thank you so much for, for sharing about your business uh, and about your journey and and about the mental health side of things. I think that everything is, is super connected in this whole process. And so thank you for being on and thank you for sharing that. If the listeners want to connect with you and check out your products or maybe ask you another question once they listen to this in the future, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So if you want to connect with Vitalytics, go to vitalytics.com and that's V-I-D-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S. So it's like video analytics. Uh, you can also, you know, probably Google us if you can't spell that. It's one of those things that you realize in hindsight that it's like, oh, this is pretty difficult to spell. But yeah, that's good. And then also, I'm on, you know, Twitter and Insta and, and Facebook and stuff like that. So you can find me on any one of those if uh, if you need to get in touch with me personally. But you can also write into Bitalytics and they can kick it up uh, up the chain to me if I need to respond to anything. Well, sounds great. Well, I would encourage everyone to check it out. It seems like a very awesome service and we should definitely look at putting some of our videos on your platform. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for being on and it was really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me.